0: some common sense. Yes
1: sir, and they have the car
2: stopped in 10 and Grant might be
0: We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me today, it's actually the afternoon, is retired NYPD Sergeant and Professor from Albertus Magnus College in New Haven, Connecticut, Professor Michael Geary. How are you doing today, Mike?
3: Good, Bill. Thank you for having me on this afternoon.
0: Well It's my pleasure to have you here. I think a lot of people are liking you, Mike. I don't know. What is that? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So, you know, Mike, one of the things we wanted to talk about, of course, is as this case uh, develops in the courts, is the evidence. Because the evidence is a huge thing, and very little of the evidence has been released by the police so far. And if we just discussed the evidence in an off-handed way, and, and I asked even an amateur um, crime watcher, what's the most powerful evidence so far in this case? And by far, it would be the DNA. The DNA recovered on that knife sheath. And even though it's touch DNA, and we probably would prefer to have blood DNA, it's touch DNA and it's... It's very, very, very powerful evidence. And we know from our background that there's no way in the world this is the only evidence they have. And when we start talking about some of the evidence, this case becomes even stronger than it already is. And, of course, we talk about another thing that is unbelievably powerful, and that's there's an eyewitness. There's an eye and an ear witness, and that's the same person. A person sees the perpetrator, granted he was wearing a mask, but she sees his physicality. She sees his size, she sees his bushy eyebrows. And if we believe that the voice that spoke in that crime scene was his, then she hears his voice. Very powerful.
3: You can't get much more powerful than a a witness, a fact witness right there Giving uh, testimony to the per- the placing the perpetrator right there at the crime scene at the time and location that the that the attacks happened, um, and the DNA is uh, to me it's ice is the icing on the cake because whatever inaccuracies she may have in her recollection uh, about a partic- about who said what, uh, where she was standing or or you know, that sort of thing, you know, and you, a defense attorney could always you know pick that apart a little bit you know because of perhaps the, the ingestion of alcohol beforehand and the fact that she was probably exhausted at that hour of the morning um dna uh it's 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 conclusive it doesn't lie you can you can explain it away and i think on the show yesterday michael vecchione was talking about that it's not like there was a uh, maybe a fingerprint or a little dna on a on a Ashtray or something that you could explain away from being at a party there two weeks earlier. No, it's uh, touch DNA on on a knife sheath, and the knife sheath is actually in the bedroom uh, where two of the uh, murdered, uh, two of the four murdered uh, students were. And so between the two, um, that's fabulous amount of evidence. They have a tremendous amount more evidence than was revealed in the affidavit, and they're continuing to gather evidence. As we speak, so by the time this will get to trial, there will be you know three or four times the amount of evidence that we even know about right now.
0: Well, Mike, even the other thing, and and we all um, we sympathize with uh, DM. Uh, I believe her first name is Dylan. We sympathize. We, I think, we understand the terror that she felt us as, as as police officers, retired police officers. We understand the terror that she viewed, and that could have totally paralyzed her into inaction. She also may have been, she may have been intoxicated, and not thinking clearly. But she's an eyeball and an, an ear witness. And, you know, folks, there actually is something called an ear witness. If you hear something that is so pertinent to the case, that's an ear witness. And I spoke yesterday to Michael Vecchioni and I asked him as a prosecutor, would he consider doing a voice lineup? And he said, you know something? That's probably not a good idea. Right. Because if she doesn't ID the voice, that can create doubt. And I was like, well, you're always thinking, Mike. You're right. I just thought also, what if she did identify the voice? That makes it that much stronger. However, the risk probably isn't worth it. Um, Right. Lorna Page, thank you for the 4.99 super chat. What kind of information is BK receiving in jail? Does he know what's happening in the news, online, etc.? What is he allowed to know? I think he probably has a uh, a blackout from watching TV, and maybe even newspapers. But he gets visits by his attorneys. I'm sure his family is visiting him. Whether they're filling him with the latest news and the latest on the case, he don't forget. He goes back to court this Thursday, so he will be. He's a smart guy; he knows what's going on. He knows what time it is, as we say in law enforcement. Let's get back to the evidence, Mike. Another huge thing, and it was from the very beginning, is the white Hyundai Elantra. And not only is that a huge piece of evidence, but it's in itself it's a crime scene. It's a huge crime scene. I want to play a little bit of um, Joseph Scott Morgan, and he talks to that. And don't forget, they stopped that car when it was on a cross-country joint from Idaho to Pennsylvania. They, the police, stopped it twice. Now, what were they looking for? Well, they may have been looking for cuts on its hands, things like that. I don't think at that point they were looking for surreptitious DNA or blood mm-hmm. stains, but. Let's listen to um, David Scott Morgan on what uh, this call means to the investigation.
4: And generally that's going to consist of them doing a buccal coastal swab uh, mm-hmm. or a cheek scraping, some people refer to it as that, to collect it from the specific source. And so they're going to go back as a confirmatory at that point in time uh, to you know kind of shore things up here's one more piece to this that we have to keep keep in mind there's a whole bounty of evidence that has yet to come forward and you know uh, one of the things I'm, I'm very interested in as a forensic science guy is that car because in my opinion that car did not make it back to Idaho more than likely either working with Pennsylvania State Police or the FBI that vehicle would have gone or has gone to an evidence processing location that has a garage, Jesse. And right now, they are taking this thing apart from stem to stern. Trust me on this. And they are going through that car because I have contended all along that this car, obviously, it's going to have Koberger's DNA in it. You would expect that to be there. But if they get in that car and they find any DNA that's associated with these poor kids Mm. that were slaughtered in that house, this is important. My contention has been is that that car is a rolling crime scene in and of itself, and it has to be handled with kit gloves at this point. So they're going to take this thing apart piece by piece, and they're going to use every kind of technology that you can imagine on this thing, everything from alternative lighting to luminol or blue star or whatever they're using. They're going to take samples from all inside of this thing. The headliners coming out, the seats are coming out, everything, the gear lever. They're going to take a look at the carpet, the substrata beneath the carpet, everything, because it doesn't matter how hard you try to clean one of these things. You are not going to escape what we're capable of doing in forensics and recovering molecular molecular evidence and That's so
5: right. much of this affidavit is based on the car it is based on cameras capturing the car seeing who yeah. it was registered to seeing the movements of the car having a track back yeah. to key locations of brian Koberger. i agree with you that could be a rolling crime scene obviously my concern would be it wasn't like they picked the car up the next day it's been out for a while obviously there could be problems yeah. there okay. joseph okay. do you want to yeah, jump on that real quick
4: yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> However, the thing about it is this. If if we were to think perhaps if this car, if this car in fact was used as the conveyance to take him back to Pullman after those alleged events that night, the ability, given the intimate nature of these killings, that he would have been yeah. super saturated with evidence yeah. and that is going to transfer into the fabric, just the fabric alone. That's the only part I'm considering right now, not to mention all these points of contact. There's no way, there's a lot of stuff that will be kind of protected in this environment. And all it takes is to draw just a bit of DNA that's connected back to these victims. How's the defense going to explain that away? How do you explain, you know, you might be able to do it with one person, but if you get a collection of four individuals that you've never met, or they've never crossed paths, how do you explain that away? inside the interior of that vehicle particularly if it's evidence rich blood evidence that's the richest dna that we can get
5: yeah and um that's 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 a good point i mean really when you break it down in terms of the, the, what
0: that so mike uh pretty amazing but one of the things also about the car that's not all the evidence we're looking for in the car no where um, what, where was the car prior to he made 12 visits to that house on a recon mission before he did the dirty deed. So That's how right. important sure. is that, which is, and is caught on video.
3: Right. The, uh, idea that, um, I, I always try to figure out what would a defense attorney say to the evidence that I think is important as a police officer or as the detective. And I think if you have the, um, you know, his cell phone pinging or there's some, uh, camera footage of him, you know, uh, driving past that house on a number of occasions, randomly over the course of three months, I might say, you know, maybe it's a through street, but in this case, it's not. So I would say that there, you know, a good defense attorney might make a little bit of hay out of saying, well, people just drive around this area and it's a university area. And so there's nothing in and of itself that is suggestive of a consciousness of guilt. But the fact that they have him pinging his cell phone pinging on a number of occasions, they also have prior to this. They also have uh, a number of ring camera uh, pictures and traffic camera pictures of him uh, in the area uh, for you know a while before the actual alleged events took place. Then, um, then I think also the which is absolutely important. And I also try to figure what would happen as a prosecutor or as an investigator. If you take this um, Hyundai apart, say you take it apart down to the bolts, right? There's nothing left, um, and you come up with no DNA. What does that pro- disprove? Well, that doesn't disprove that he was that he was there. No, uh, you already have that electronically with pictures and cell phone pinging, and so uh, on different occasions. And also, um, if you don't come up with any. Thing, a defense attorney might say, okay, well, that shows that, you know, there would obviously would have to be a DNA transfer from his body to the seats or something else. And therefore, the lack of DNA is suggestive of innocence. A district, uh, a defense attorney would say that and put that out there. But, you know, it's only going to go so far. The jury's going to look at all the evidence that they actually have presented to them. And they're going to weigh that evidence against Uh, a suggestion that, oh, you know, it's a university town. He just drives by, or uh, there's no DNA and conclude, you know, that there's reasonable doubt of, 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 of guilt and, and that uh, there, he could possibly be innocent. I doubt it, but, you know, that's what a defense attorney does. They try to make a lot of, a lot of, a lot uh, out of, out of a little, and to suggest that there actually is, you know, the presence of doubt. Remember, the prosecutor must prove each and every element of the crime, the corpus delecti, uh beyond a reasonable doubt. And the defense is trying to show that there is just some reasonable doubt. And so if worse comes to worse, that Hyundai comes up with absolutely no DNA, it's not the end of the world. Not at all. Not at all. I expect absolutely. there will be some, but if not, it's not the end of the world at all.
0: You know, Mike. My- you, you really explained that very well. Sorry, I was winded. Just so the audience knows, corpus delicti does not mean the body. What no, it no, means no. is it means the body of the crime, the yes. totality of the crime. And he used that term like we all knew what it meant. And I'm, sorry, I, I'm sorry. Oh, it's all right. Luckily, it's like a doctor talking to you, but you except you're speaking <laughs> in legal terms. Another thing I want to bring up, and that's what when we say. What was released in the probable cause affidavit as far as evidentiary material was a great deal. However, it is a tiny, it's minutiae compared to what they have. And what I want to suggest may be the absolute, absolute smoking gun besides the knife sheath, which is potentially a smoking gun, are the bodies of the deceased. I expect the bodies to have the most evidence on them, the most damning evidence, uh, DNA evidence, and that the body's transferred evidence to the perpetrator, and if they can recover his clothes or find their blood inside the car, Mr. Brian Koberger is toast. I I believe he's toast anyway, but if they find any of those things, I don't care if he gets the Dream Team Part 2. He's not leading this case.
3: Yeah. I think um, as I saw your show yesterday and with uh, ADA, uh, Mike Vecchioni, and he suggested that um, DM would probably be the first witness he would put on in the trial to get to grab the jury's attention right away rather than put on a, a scientist. And I think that would be a great idea. I, I, I would agree. You get the jury's oh my, attention I, I, I right think away. That,
0: I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think oh, no, 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 no. she'll be a very, very sympathetic. Oh, yes. Woman. Yes. And So um, sympathetic, um, you know.
3: And if a defense attorney beat her up, uh, I don't think it would win the defense any sort of points with the jury. Uh, the jury knows that this, uh, this young lady, she's only 20, 21 years old. She has gone through a horrible experience that, the likes of which almost nobody around survives, and so if it's if it comes out that there are some inconsistencies with what she heard, what she perceived, uh, in that darkened hallway at four, you know, 4:15 in the morning, um, you know, they're they're going to understand that that's normal human behavior. Uh, we we don't record things in our brain like it's a videotape or something, or we rewind it. Not at all. And so I would put her on the stand first, get the jury's attention so they can understand what was going, what a, a living human being witnessed at that time and place, and then get her off the stand and then go with the first police officer who arrived on the scene, you know, and what they saw and then do the chrono- and then continue with the chronological progression of the investigation.
0: Absolutely. I want to play a little of this. This is also um, News Nation talking with a, um, a Florida prosecutor in regards to evidence. You
6: know about state attorney for Palm Beach County, Florida, Dave Ehrenberg. Dave, uh, good morning to you. Always good to see you. Thank you for talking to us about this one. So investigators in making an arrest did not have to find a motive. That is not their intent and their priority. How about prosecutors to get a conviction?
1: Good morning, Marnie. Yeah, although prosecutors don't have to show a motive to get a conviction for first-degree murder, juries want to know the motive, especially when they see this clean-cut guy with no criminal background. They wanna know why he did it. Now, I think it's coming into focus why he did it. He seemed to be a devotee of serial killers and crime. I mean, he studied under the BTK's autobiographer. I mean, he was so interested in, in true crime that looks like he wanted to be the center of his own story.
6: Let's talk a little bit about the evidence that we know about that was released in the affidavit. Um, What do you think is the most significant piece of evidence um, that's been publicly realized that will help prosecutors get a conviction?
1: I think the DNA is most powerful. I mean, science is science. And they have to a 99.999 plus percent certainty that the other Uh, was the father of the DNA left on the sheath of the knife, meaning that this defendant's father, to almost a certainty, was the father of the killer. So I think that is really powerful. Now, remember, all the evidence that we have heard of right now has not been tested by the defense lawyers, the witnesses, and I think that's another powerful bit of evidence.
0: You know, Mike, I wanted to just stop for that second because I think this is where In the case, a defense attorney can create a lot lot of doubt. Oh, wait a minute. What was the process of comparing the DNA from the knife sheath against the father's DA? What was the the DNA? What was the process? And if he could find that there was anything wrong procedurally, I mean, that's what they did in in the OJ case, very different case. But procedurally, now, my question also is, once they got that hit, At one point, at what point did they actually compare Brian Koberger's DNA right to the DNA sample they had lifted uh, from the knife sheath?
3: Yeah, chronologically, if uh, reading the affidavit, it appeared that uh, they got the hit. um, And once they got the hit, they were all set. They had a team in place in Pennsylvania watching. They were all set. All they wanted was that match. And that match came like a day or two, right before they got them, they had that match. And all they had to do was that little last piece. They submitted that, um, you know, the affidavit to the, to the judge, the judge signed it. They got a communication from Utah, go get them. We got the affidavit. It's been signed by the judge. Judge approved it probable cause go get them. So that the match, it appears happened absolutely very late in in the investigation, I shouldn't say late in the investigation, investigation is still going on, but right before, chronologically, perhaps the day before they actually grabbed him. Um, Yeah, the uh, defense attorney can make some hay about uh, the process of DNA, uh, you know, uh, acquisition and comparison, but, uh, you know, these things are done you know, in a, in a manner across all fifty states, and also on the federal government with the FBI, Department of Justice, this there's there is a process that is followed that has been considered to and proven to be reliable over the years. So that there and the results are reliable because they've been done, you know, thousands upon thousands of times. The only way I think a D, de- uh, I'm sorry, a defense attorney could really make some headway would be if the DNA if, if it was an old cold case and the DNA might've been exposed to the elements for a long time, it was old uh, and it might've been degraded. But in this case uh, with the DNA being, you know, sheltered in a home and uh, got the DNA gotten from the knife sheath and then taken from the trash of, and in a sam- another sample taken from the trash of his father's home in Pennsylvania uh, with fresh DNA, and the, the process that has been proven to be, you know, 100% reliable time and time again over the last several decades, it's going to be really hard for the defense attorney to really score any points and, um, and, and come up with some sort of way to create a little reasonable doubt in the manner in which the DNA was collected and processed, uh, because the the, the process has been proven over decades to be reliable.
0: Well, I you know, Mike, I could see I was watching um, that attorney, Garagos, on Cuomo the other night. And you could see that the defense attorneys are chomping at the bit sure. for more meat on the bone to go after because yeah. the probable cause affidavit is not enough for them. They need more meat on the bone. And, I mean, even though he's not person that's going to represent Brian Koberger. he thinks like a defense attorney and he's he's chomping again at the bit. Let me play more of this uh, News Nation report.
1: The eyewitness that was there that night, she had been put on the stand under cross-examination. You also have the defendant tied to the white Hyundai that was used in the crime. They have cell phone data that shows him in the vicinity before and after the crime. So they've got a lot of evidence already, and I suspect there's more to come.
6: They don't have the murder weapon, though, at least to our knowledge. And we were just showing a similar knife on the screen. How critical is that piece of evidence?
1: Well, it will be helpful. But in so many cases that we deal with, we don't find the murder weapon. And these guys, especially this guy who is a an expert in this area, who is, is obviously knowledgeable enough to hide the murder weapon or to just dis- dispense with it, uh, but You can still get a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt with all the other evidence out there the one thing though that prosecutors will find is a challenge is to convince a jury of the motive because as you said you know the the jurors they don't have to have a motive but they want to know the motive and you've got to show why this guy would do a crime like this. But I think, to me, it's coming into focus. I mean, this is the kind of person who is either, according to reports, either a serial killer or a wannabe serial killer because he is fascinated by this stuff. I mean, he asked in this research study for information for people to tell them who committed crimes, why they did it, and what was going through their minds and how they felt about it. So it seems like this is the kind of person who would do such a barbaric act with no financial motive just because he wanted to do it.
6: What do you suspect the defense will do? How will they play this? And we've got this status hearing coming up on Thursday that the defense asked for. What should we expect?
1: Well, they'll probably try to get more information. I think they use these preliminary hearings to try to gather more information so they can better represent their client. Uh, But I, I think what they may try to do is to challenge the probable cause there or at least... Uh, to slow things down a little bit, to try to set a trial calendar that's beneficial to the defendant. But right now, the evidence looks pretty bad against their guy. And the most they can do is probably just try to get as much information as possible at this point.
6: How do you expect him to plead, Dave?
1: Not guilty. Uh, There's no way he's pleading guilty at this point. He's going to plead not guilty. He's going to going through the whole defense. He is going to make the prosecutors put everything on trial. Uh, He doesn't have to show anything. He can stay silent, and the prosecution has the entire burden. But here's another guarantee, Marnie. Not only will he plead not guilty, but I will guarantee you that the prosecutors here will seek the death penalty. Because if you don't seek the death penalty in a case where four innocent college students were slaughtered in such a way, then when do you seek it? And Idaho is a death penalty state.
6: Right. And and unfortunately, the jury did not... um, go after the death penalty when we saw the Florida shooting in your state, um, the deadly shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. How likely is it to seat a jury and the challenges they will face in making the decision in a state like Idaho in a, such a highly publicized murder?
1: Idaho is a very red state and very pro-capital punishment. In the case of Nicholas Cruz, which you referenced, Marnie, it's in Broward, it was in Broward County, Florida, a very blue county, a lot more progressive attitudes, anti-death penalty in some parts. All you need is one. Idaho, it's much easier to get the death penalty. And I think there's a really good shot at it. Now, I do think there's a very high probability this case will be moved out of this small town into a bigger city like Boise. But they will be able to find a jury of his peers to be objective because you don't need to find a jury who will just, you know, be a blank slate. They can know about the case. They just have to say that they can remain impartial. And I've found in high profile cases, they could always, we always can get a jury.
0: You know Mike I uh, even though there is a, a death penalty on the books in Idaho sure the, his, the history of the death penalty is that even when it's issued there is endless appeals with 25 30 years of appeals so it's almost never um used except maybe in Texas uh, they may go for it but it's not it, it's not served as the punishment
3: yeah quite often uh, prosecutors will charge someone with capital murder and make it a death penalty case uh, in order to get leverage and so I can imagine that they in this case they will absolutely charge him with capital murder under Idaho law and that and they won't take that off the table they'll they'll tell the defense we're going to go to trial this way and that will complicate things a lot in terms of appeals and we've talked about that in the past but it's going to but it's a threat it's that sword hanging over the guy's head And you hope at that point, rather than go to trial, he'll be convinced to, you know, um, plead guilty to all four uh, homicides and then uh, accept the uh, life behind bars without possibility of parole sentence. That would make it a lot easier on everybody concerned and you'd get uh, justice uh, much, much more swift. And so that's likely what they're going to do if he doesn't plead guilty and uh, and, uh, you know, go for a deal, something like that, and he wants to go all the way to the absolute end, it's going to be a long, drawn-out process, but you're right. Um, if he was, sa- just set a date. If he was convicted of this, of the crime in, um, say, August of 2023, say the trial was 2023, August. If he was on death row, let's see, probably two, maybe 2030, 2040, he may face the death penalty, but, uh, you know, that's justice delayed. And under our system, you know, justice delayed is justice denied.
0: Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime stories from a police perspective, then you are in the right location. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. And recommend us to your friends. Make comments. We love to read your comments. In fact, uh, I think Mike has been spending all his free time reading the comments lately. Uh, We appreciate you recommend us to your friends. All of that um, helps our channel and brings you guys uh, to to watch this show. If you want to um, contribute to us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. We also have a YouTube channel membership with five different levels. And you can see the folks with the green font. They are um, in our YouTube channel. MT Houston, Texas, I found your show through this channel. I enjoy your content. Thanks for giving these victims and families a voice. MT Houston, thank you so much for the $5 super chat, and thank you for your kind words. You know, so much about the evidence in this case, again, a just an infinitesimal amount. Uh, so, well, so far, a very tiny, tiny minutiae of evidence has been released. And now there's actually a gag order from the judge that the police and the prosecutors and the attorneys they cannot talk about it right now. But we know that there is tons more evidence. We spoke about Mike the um the autopsies. Mm-hmm. And in essence, mm-hmm. in a murder, the body is one of the biggest crime scenes there is. And in this case, we have four different crime scenes. So the the probability that there's DNA fibers, uh, low cards, um,
3: transfer theory,
0: right? The transfer theory, uh, it's absolutely going to be there. And, um, AED MM uh, Rhino Girl, thank you for the $250 uh, super chat, very informative. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for, for supporting us. So, um, yeah, low cards. You know, and I don't want to use the word theory because uh, it's, proven. Uh, it's proven. It's it's yeah, exactly. It's proven. It's yeah. it's not it's not proven. Low card uses the term principle. principle. I was looking for that word. Oh, low thank you. Principle. and that has to do with the exchange of evidence. Yeah. And on all four of these bodies, the potentiality that there's been an exchange of evidence between the perpetrator and the victims is huge. And if his DNA is on any of these bodies, you know, as they say, it's all it's over. It's all over it's singing, you know?
3: Yeah. Bill, can I uh, quickly um, refer to the gag order?
0: Absolutely.
3: OK. Yeah, I, I think that's a smart, prudent move by by the judge. You, you know, this is going to be a case with a lot of horrific, uh, gory details. When it does come out at trial, it's going to be it's going to be terrible for the families to have to go through this, the jurors to go through this. And I think the gag order is is absolutely prudent and necessary. You don't want any sort of leaks to the media by the police or anybody like that that's going to sensationalize this any more than it's been. Uh, it would only hurt the families. And um, you don't want to also, um, you know, uh, infect a potential pool of jurors because the jurors will be uh, primarily taken from Latah County. And if, if there is no motion, and I doubt there will be, uh, it'll happen there. I believe a defense attorney will try to make a motion to, to uh, move it to a different uh, county in the state. But you don't want to infect a jury pool with any sort of sensational headlines uh, on stuff on social media, stuff on the news, stuff in print, you know, commenting on things, adding all their you know particular insights. You want to try to uh, desensationalize this as soon as much as you can, and have a jury of people who uh, are actually willing uh, to listen to both sides. It's important. It's important in our system of justice that you get 12 uh, jurors who can actually fairly give this person Brian Koberg, Uh, a day in court. He actually gets, under our system of law, the benefit of the doubt. He's considered uh, innocent until proven guilty. He bears no burden of proving innocence whatsoever, and it is entirely up to the prosecutor to prove it each and every element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. So he has to get a fair trial, and a gag order will help ensure that you will get a fair and impartial jury in this case. And and that's what we're looking for.
0: Absolutely. Jody M., I find your uh, question very interesting because I think uh, since the beginning of this case, I've done 31 or 32 shows on this case. And I suggested early on that the perpetrator had his phone with him when he did this. And everyone said to me, oh, that's ridiculous. Why would he do that? He had his phone on him, didn't he? However... He was smart enough. Well, actually, he wasn't smart enough. He turned off the phone en route to the crime scene, but turned it on when he left. That's almost better better than, you know, keeping it on all the time because it showed that he was trying to hide something. And, you know, that technology we spoke about, every single thing that we predicted in this investigation that they should be doing, they absolutely did. And one of them was something called geofencing. And that's where they can pull up every electronic device being used in a specific geographic area and identify that it's very expensive to do, but the FBI has got big bucks and they did that and they identified his phone. And I also just wanted to say a lot of people that listen to this and listen to real crime, a couple of people in the chat said, Oh, this case was so easy. You know, I was just like, you got to be kidding me. You've got to. It's like like watching open heart surgery and saying, wow, that looks so easy. Yeah, it looks so easy because that guy was trained and he's been doing it for X amount of years. He's experienced doing it. He knows what to do. But to say that this case was easy is so far from the truth that I almost laugh. I do laugh when I read that. Just outrageously ridiculous.
3: Yeah, there, the the whole the entire house was a crime was a crime scene. It wasn't one room. This isn't an Agatha Christie uh, movie where someone's lying in the library and there's like four witnesses and one Scotland Yard detective. No, this is you know room upon room upon room with bodies inside of those rooms. You've got uh, you got to you got to look do luminal. You got to search the entire house, every single room, even if there's no body and it has to be gone over. You're getting detectives crawling around on their hands and knees looking for any, with, you know, with, with any sort of evidence they can possibly come up with. So the entire house is a crime scene. You have his uh, apartment, his graduate apartment in Washington State University. That's part of the crime scene. You have his car. That's pop, part of a crime scene. Um, so this was an amazingly complicated case. The six weeks it took from from the time the crime is committed to the time that he was arrested on an arrest warrant um is actually very quick and the public doesn't understand that that is about as fast as you could possibly go in a scene this complicated in you know crime scenes this complicated so you know hats off to them they moved fast and you can't move any faster than they did
0: and, and Mike, the it, investigation it, it, is not over. It's still going on. Over. And they got, over, be- they got over, I think, 14,000 tips. Right. See if right. you can just answer those out and see how complicated that is in itself. Let me play a little bit of this from Law and Crime.
5: Addresses. I have reviewed the numerous videos that were collected and have had conversations with other officers, and they go on to say that. Um, a review of camera footage indicated, and this is where that white Hyundai Elantra comes into play. A review of camera footage indicated that a white sedan hereafter suspect vehicle one was observed traveling westbound in the 700 block of Indian Hills Drive in Moscow at approximately 3.26 a.m. and westbound on Steiner Avenue at Idaho, Idaho State Highway 95 in Moscow at approximately 3.28 a.m. On this video, it appeared suspect vehicle one was not displaying a front license plate. At this point, they didn't know it was the... the um, the vehicle that we now know, the white Hyundai Elantra. This is how they first were able to identify it. A review of footage from multiple videos obtained from the King Road neighborhood showed multiple sightings of suspect vehicle one starting at 3.29 a.m. and ending at 4.20 a.m. Remember the timeline of when they think these murders occurred. These sightings show suspect vehicle one makes an initial three passes by the 1122 King Road residents and then leave via Wellenta Drive. Based off of my experience as a patrol officer, this is a residential neighborhood with a very limited number of vehicles that travel in the area during the early morning hours. Upon review of the video, there are only a few cars that enter and exit this area during this time frame. Again, this is also important because, remember, he is charged with first-degree murder. There is a level of premeditation and planning to this. Keep this in mind as we hear all this. Suspect Vehicle 1 can be seen entering the area a fourth time at approximately 4.04 a.m. It can be seen driving eastbound on King Road, stopping and turning around in front of 500 Queen Road, number 52, and then driving back westbound on King Road. When suspect vehicle one is in front of the King Road residence, it appeared to unsuccessfully attempt to park or turn around in the road. The vehicle then continued to the intersection of Queen Road and King Road, where it can be seen completing a three-point turn and then driving eastbound again down Queen Road. Suspect Vehicle 1 is next seen departing the area of the King Road residence at approximately 4.20 a.m. at a high rate of speed. Suspect Vehicle 1 is next observed traveling southbound on Walenta Drive. Based
0: Mike, how powerful is what he was just saying? How it's, powerful to the prosecution is that?
3: It's very strong circumstantial evidence of consciousness of guilt. You have a person not just passing by once or once a week over the course of, you know, three months, uh, that sort of thing. Now, this is entirely different. You've got a, a, a very small period of time, very brief period of time, just before four to just after four and he's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, numerous times. Make you know, trying to park, make a U-turn in an area where there's little traffic. He doesn't live there. Uh, he's not visiting anybody there. There's no evidence that he was uh, driving there to visit someone. You know, a block away. No, it was all around that area uh, in a very short period of time. That goes to uh, circumstantial evidence of consciousness of guilt. And remember. As a death penalty case, um, you're trying to prove as much malice, what they call the old idea of malice aforethought, planning, you know, and an execution. This wasn't something that was, uh, you know, uh, a a spontaneous event where maybe somebody threatened him and he, you know, attacked him back to defend himself. No, this was pre planned. And uh, he was trying to figure out maybe the best way to get in and out where to park the car. He was thinking about the murders, what he's going to do beforehand, what he's going to do after he's done. Uh, very strong co- uh, consciousness of guilt evidence. Absolutely.
5: On my knowledge of the area and review of camera footage in the neighborhood, that does not show suspect vehicle one during that time frame. I believe that suspect vehicle one likely exited the neighborhood at Palouse River Drive and Conestoga Drive. Poules River Drive is at the southern edge of Moscow and proceeds into Whitman County, Washington. Eventually, the road leads to Pullman, Washington. Pullman, Washington is approximately 10 miles from Moscow, Idaho. Both Pullman and Moscow are small college towns, and people commonly travel back and forth between them. We talked about this before when he was ultimately apprehended, the connection, the geographical distance between his university and where these murders occurred. I'm going to continue on. Law enforcement officers provided video footage of suspect want video vehicle one to forensic examiners with the FBI that regularly utilizes surveillance footage to identify the year, make, and model of these unknown vehicles. The forensics examiner, and they go into the forensic examiner's uh, background and experience. After reviewing the numerous observations of suspect vehicle one, the forensic examiner initially believed that suspect vehicle one was a 2011-2013 Hyundai Elantra, but upon further review, he indicated it could also be a 2011-2016 Hyundai Elantra. As a result, investigators have been reviewing information on persons in possession of a vehicle of this type. Investigators were given access to video footage on the Washington State University WSU campus. This is how they were able to connect the car to Koberger. If we have some more time, I'd like to get into it before we take our break. So let me do this real quick.
0: Very interesting, very powerful um, folks. Are, someone's asking in the chat, why didn't they get the DNA from Brian when he was in Washington? And they weren't done surveilling him. They weren't, I don't know if they had the DNA, they didn't have the DNA match yet from the knife sheath. So they didn't have a probable cause at that point. So we had spoken about uh, them surreptitiously obtaining, (laughs) I use that word, I love that word, uh, obtaining DNA. Uh, However, instead they were able to recover DNA from the garbage and matched it to his father and through his right. father, match it to him. So right. everything, you know, one of the things that a lot of folks that follow this, they don't realize things take time and things have to be done in chronological order. You can't right. just skip steps because it, it it it's easier to do it that way. You have to do it chronologically for legal reasons.
3: Right. You're, um, at the time that he, the Washington they identified uh, that his car was in uh, Washington State University. You know, they may have had some suspicions of Kohlberger, but there might have been other people they were still looking at. Remember, they were doing numerous uh, uh, interviews with students uh, from the sorority, from the fraternity. So he was one of many people who could potentially have committed this crime, and to. You know, get DNA from him, uh, drag him into a police headquarters and an in, in, in interrogation. You're tipping your hand. Uh, if he's smart enough, he'll just lawyer up immediately. Um, and you don't want to do that. You want to leave this person uh, you know, to their own devices while you quickly get as much other evidence because you're not sure at this point that there's more than one Hyundai. There's, uh, there might've been motives. Uh, we talked about the victimology studies there might have been, uh, people might have motives or grudges against one of the other four people, one of the four uh, students who was killed. Uh, not everything was pointing to um, Kohlberger at the start. You know, uh, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and it all fits in by the time they get to Pennsylvania and they uh, execute the arrest warrant. But before that, you know, the stages of criminal suspicion start out at, you know, basic mere suspicion of someone, then you may have some reasonable suspicion based on some objective indications of criminal conduct. And then you still have to get up to the point where you have probable cause before you're going to seize that person and charge them with a the crime. So it might, it might seem frustrating to viewers, but remember, you know, everything is going chronologically and, you know, we now know what we know, but we didn't know it at the time. And that is frustrating.
0: That's understandable. Absolutely. Calico. Thank you for the 499 super chat in terms of the DNA. DNA can defense use the fact that there were other people on scene before police to create reasonable doubt. Absolutely. And they will try to do that. They may even try to say that the defendant had been in that house before. They could say that it doesn't have to be true. They could say that, that he attended a party, you know, since when does, is it a requirement for lawyers not to lie? That's why the word lawyer and liar sounds so similar. <laughs>
3: That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. The, uh, the, the they a defense attorney could argue that, yeah, maybe there was a fingerprint uh, that he might have left. Maybe there's a piece of hair DNA, you know, that for, at, on a couch that was in the living room. Oh yeah, fine. You could do that. No problem at all. And if you're a defense attorney, remember you have to do, uh, you have to, uh, the oath that a defense attorney takes in the Canada of ethics is to zealously advocate for their client, and they will make as much you know possible reasonable doubt as they can with the slimmest of, of evidence. Uh, no problem. That's their that's their ethical duty. But how do you explain? You can explain away a piece of hair, uh, a fingernail, uh, you know, some skin cells, a fingerprint. wear in the living room? How do you explain if if it if it turns out that it is there? How do you explain uh, your DNA? under the the, the decedent's fingernails or your blood DNA in the bedroom. Uh, Very different story. Um, You know, defense attorney's going to have a hard time trying to come up, conjure up some reasonable doubt in that sort of scenario.
0: Absolutely. Sharon B., uh, and I know what you're leading, his registration expired November 30th, so he was due to switch it. But how convenient that... He used the car with the Pennsylvania plates to commit a quadruple murder. Then all all of a sudden realized, oh, I need to re-register my car and change the plates. Because also, let's face the facts that in Pennsylvania, you, you don't have to have a front plate. However, uh, in Washington, you do. And New York, you have to have a, a front sure. and a rear plate. But Pennsylvania is one of the um, states where you only have to have one plate on the vehicle. So I think he did that as criminal technique. I think he did that thinking that if he didn't have a front plate, it would be less apt that someone would be able, especially a camera. Mm -hmm. Most license plate cameras take a picture of the front plate. Red light cameras, take a picture of the front plate. Toll booths, take a picture of the front plate. So there was a method to his madness. I don't think he was being so astute. Oh my car. Well, he killed four people. He's worrying about the registration to his car. I find that a little bit tough to believe.
3: And you know what, Billy, even if a defense attorney could make a little bit of, you know, doubt by saying, look, uh, he's following the law. He's following Department of Motor Vehicle regulations. So what? You know, you've and the, the, I remember in some of the pictures that they have of him traveling that night, there's pictures of of his car with only the Pennsylvania plate on it because we know there's no front plate. There's only a rear plate. So uh, what he was trying to do perhaps was A, follow the law or B, cover up like we believe he was doing, trying to cover his trail, his tracks. But either way, that doesn't show uh, much reasonable doubt. Um, it, it's going to be hard to argue that uh, that's going to be that meaningful. when well, we know he had the Pennsylvania plates on his car the day the crime, the homicide was committed because we have pictures of his car driving down the road. And so without a front plate. So he was, he's an amateur. Remember as smart as he may be, he's, he's a student and he's a student in a, in a graduate program. He's not a streetwise thug, not at all.
0: Well, you know, Mike, even with, um, you know, everyone that's been following this or the, the, um, our audience, people that enjoy true crime, real crime. You know, the fact, some of the facts that we pointed out or some of the, th- the things that we said, like, he'll probably have his phone on him. And no one could believe that. It, it yeah. is hard to believe. Oh, he's smart. Why would he? Because guess what? In this day and age, people can't leave their damn phone home. It's this psychological it's attachment to true. this object. I, I'm that way. I walk out of my house like, oh, yeah. my phone. It's I like, too. you know, I just yeah. cannot be not connected to the outside world while I'm going to the supermarket. I have to have it, you know, and I I don't really need it, but I, you know, I have this psychological thing that I have to have it. I want to also, I want to segue Mike to the behavioral aspects aspects of this case, because it's definitely going to come up and we've seen and heard so many, and I call them talking heads on all kinds of TV stations. Um, to the um, psychologists who have studied serial killers, to people that uh, went to the FBI behavioral analysis school. There's been so many predictions. However, last week I had, um, I had Bobby Chacon on, and I thought he was one of the best. And then it turns out he has, he has two, um, he has two family members, his dad, and his brother are retired NYPD sergeants. So he's like Paisan, you know? He's like, we we let him into the the family. He's Paisan. Anyway, he is very, very reasonable because many of these people that are the talking heads for the behavioral analysis, they believe, they talk in absolutes. And there's no secret that I have a problem with that. Because you, you work police work and you've done investigations. Nothing is ever 100%. Nothing, you know? You can't speak in absolutes. And Bobby Jacone absolutely does not. And I want to play a little bit. He's being interviewed by Brian Enton here. And I just think he's very thoughtful and he's street. Like my, a lot of most FBIs aren't street. He's street. And I really like that about him. And if you don't know what street is, guys, I'll explain it to you later. If we could get this to play, though,
7: here I am. Uh, Bobby Chacon. Bobby, thank you so much for being with us. The first thing I want to ask you uh, that has a lot of people puzzled is this surviving roommate who apparently saw the killer walk by. Do you think the killer saw her? And if so, why may he have spared her life?
2: Well, it's a great question, Brian. And I think I think he did see her. But I think but looking at the affidavit with the the phone records and where he was, I think he had a certain plan. There was a plan in place that he had for this house. So he was executing a plan as he thought it was going to go in. Now, all all of the times that people do this, things go wrong. He might have only planned on two victims, and it turned out to be four. I think that the rage that he had that was building in the days and weeks leading up to the murders, I think all came out, and I think – uh, you know, the opposite side of that rage is a is a, an adrenaline crash. And I think that after the fourth victim, it's entirely possible he crashed. He was simply so exhausted. And then you get kind of tunnel vision. He was looking to get out of that house as quickly as he could. And that the other two people downstairs were not part of his plan. And so he walked right by her to get out, get out of the house. So I think it's entirely mm. possible he was simply too exhausted. And it wasn't part of the plan that he had envisioned.
7: One of the creepiest things about this for me when I read over the affidavit was that he is accused of coming back to the house. That's what the cell phone records indicate around 915 in the morning uh, after the murders. Is it possible? Do you think he may have been going back to actually to go back inside? Do you think he realized that he left the knife sheath there?
2: You know, it could be, but I don't think so. I think this is sometimes classic criminal behavior where they revisit the scene of the crime. I think he might have gone back there to see if there were ambulances or police cars. He probably expected the police to be there already. Um, and I, I think he went back to look and look for police or what kind of activity was taking part at the house. Sometimes the thrill, we've seen people stand behind police lines at fires. Arsonists do this a lot. And, and so I think that he was driving by to see the, the, you know, basically the fruits of his actions. If there were, you know, there should have been by that time, a lot of police activity and ambulance activity. So I think that that might be, you know, it's impossible to tell. This is all speculation on my part, but I think it's quite possible that he was going back there to expect to see a lot of police activity.
7: Yeah. And like you said, we hear that people like this uh, get get a very weird, strange thrill from things like that. Let's talk about these traffic stops in Indiana. There were the two stops, very suspicious over twice on the way back to Pennsylvania
2: well, I think it's possible now. I, I originally thought that it might have been orchestrated because it's a it's a investigative technique that I myself used when I used to work the mafia in New York City. We used to have the NYPD uh, radio cars, the uniform patrol, pull them over to ID who was in the car and things like that. Um, so I think... You know, I thought originally that at least the first one was orchestrated, probably not the second one, because you never want to do two of these too close together because the suspect can can raise their suspicion that the police are on to them. So um, initially, I thought the first one, particularly because it was a sheriff and the sheriffs don't usually do traffic enforcement on the interstates. That's usually the state troopers, which the second stop was a state trooper. So I think. I think when they have, they have no reason to lie that they didn't orchestrate it, this is a perfectly valid and and legal uh, investigative tool. Um, and they wouldn't want to jeopardize the case by by lying about it afterwards and, and things. So I think that, um, right. that if they didn't orchestrate it, now it could have been orchestrated by the Idaho State Police. You know, that's something that people have said, and that's perfectly possible. But I think right now it might be just really a really weird coincidence.
0: You know, Mike couple of things that he said I want to address. And one, I thought that was very astute. And to me, I could tell he's, he's he's been a street cop his whole life. Because when he said he came back to the scene, because it's common for criminals, especially like serial killers and arsonists and people that do crimes like that, to want to admire their work. And I believe that's why he went back there. There was some that suggested, oh, he was going to go back in the house and kill the other two or go back in the house and try to retrieve evidence. That is so far fetched as to be doesn't pass the smell test, as they say. But I think he was he was right on with uh, with what he said about this. And he's one of the the few talking heads that I've seen that uh, really hit this right on the head.
3: Yeah, Uh, he didn't come back at nine o'clock to retrieve the, the sheath. I'm sure when he figured out that he didn't have the sheath, probably five minutes after he committed the homicides and was on the road, he, he knew he had to keep going back to Washington. There's no way he's going back to that house. Uh, his adrenaline, as Bobby Chacon said, yeah, um, we've been there. You and I've been there. You're chasing somebody. There's There's shots fired. You're, you're, You you develop this long like tube you're looking down tunnel vision and I would get uh, like a almost like a a, a rushing in my ears and I couldn't even hear what my partner would be yelling it was very odd but it's it's that fight or flight kind of a human instinct so you know there's there's uh, he probably was coming off of a, a a high and he walked past that that girl looking just at that door that was his escape. He gets into the car. Maybe he realizes uh, as he's driving away, I don't have the sheath. He's got to keep going. He absolutely has to keep going. Uh, he cannot go back. And to go back at nine o'clock, he's not going back at nine o'clock to go in that house. It's broad daylight. He's expecting cops to be there. He's He wants cops to be there. He wants that place to be roped off. He wants to see ambulances there. He wants to see students crying. He wants to see the bodies being taken out in a, in a morgue wagon, you know, on stretchers. This is what he wants to do. This is what arsonists do. They go back to the scene. They enjoy seeing the flames. They enjoy seeing all the emergency equipment. This is classic kind of stuff. So I believe that's why he was going there. There's no way at nine o'clock in the morning, uh, in broad daylight, he would go back into that house and jeopardize what he did. He, at that point, he probably thought He may have gotten away with it. There might have been some doubts, but he probably thought he got away with it. He's not going to endanger himself any more than
0: he already had. Absolutely. Ali, Kat, thank you for the $2 super chat. I've seen reports DNA from trash was illegal. Well, you're, you're reading the wrong people. Once you throw something out, you have no expectation of privacy as to what you just threw out in the garbage. So it's fair game. If the pe- police want to take it, they can take it without a warrant. Some of these folks that you may be listening to on YouTube or on the Internet, they're, um, what do they call them? Uh, well, amateur lawyers. What's the term they use, Mike? Uh, but they definitely don't know yeah, the law.
3: Yeah, yeah. They're like, you always get uh, criminals who thinks that that they are lawyers. They call them jailhouse lawyers. But you get a lot of people who are wannabes. They're just wannabes.
0: Yeah. yeah and absolutely the law is you have no expectation of privacy and I'm once sure. you throw something out that's that's it. It can be taken by the police and when we talk we use that big word surreptitiously that you can obtain DNA that way also. Kerry Hawks, what are the chances he will take a plea deal considering the amount of evidence recently presented to him? Thanks for your response. love this channel and both of you you guys use guys. I like that. That's a new that's a New York a New York thing. You guys shared wisdom, Saugerties, New York. Thank you, Kerry, for the 9.99 super chat. I don't think there's any way in the world he's going to take a plea. I believe part of the attention he's getting is what he wanted in committing these murders, and his day in court is his stage.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, if you take a look at the BTK killer, he he pleaded guilty. And he and he was there in the courtroom discussing for like 45 minutes all the homicides he committed. And and that was interesting enough. And I've watched it several times. Um, I don't I think this guy like you, he wants something of a stage. He's cooked. He's cooked. He, he's not walking free, a free man anytime, uh, you know, in this lifetime. Yeah, But he wants probably to milk this for all the attention he can get. Even if it means perhaps going all the way and taking this to trial with a death penalty hanging over his head, Um, his attorneys, I'm sure, are going to try as hard as they can to talk him out of it. But in the end, it's up to him. His head telling him what he thinks is going to be the in his best interest. That's where he's going. So it's hard to tell. Uh, Common sense, absolutely not. Do not take this to trial. A person with his outlook on life knowing this is all he's got now this is all his life is now is this case uh he might want to milk it for all it's worth and to, and and roll the
0: dice absolutely jj thank you for the 999 super sticker very much appreciated folks this is police off the cuff real crime stories and if you like real crime from a police perspective you're in the right place um And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell, uh, share us with your friends, make comments. We love to read your comments, whether they're uh, true or false. We can help you uh, if something is incorrect. Uh, We can try to correct it with our vast knowledge of law enforcement. And Mike here has a law degree, so he's well-versed. He's also a professor. But we love reading the the, uh, comments. If you want to, Help us financially. We have a Patreon with three different levels and we have a YouTube channel. with count them five different levels. And you see the folks in the green font. They're part of our YouTube channel. I wanna play a little bit as this is criminologist, Casey Jordan. I find this pretty interesting also, Mike. And uh, I think a lot of this is gonna come into play during this trial. If I could get it to play.
8: First of all, I can't believe anybody would joke about something so horrendous. Second of all, if you're innocent and you're brought in, why would you say something like this? I wanted to get your read on that comment that was made in the Pennsylvania jail.
9: Yeah, the snarky sarcasm there is not the mark of an innocent person. It's just not. It is somebody who's narcissistic, smug, and thinks he's going to get away with it. But you just mentioned the internship that he applied for in Pullman, Washington, with the local police, where he wanted to help them with their digital forensic technology as if he was an expert. And that is ironic. Uh, because of course it's the digital forensics, the the cell phone, the car video, the videos of his car that got him caught. But the biggest thing, if you want to just chalk up if he is indeed guilty, how idiotic this is, is that he is in a death penalty state that doesn't have the insanity defense. It's the only state in the union that doesn't have the insanity defense. So maybe the shopping's better. Was he talking about shopping for victims? It's it's not just creepy. It's it's insulting uh, yeah. to well, the he justice. Yeah. Well, you know
8: that, what he went to L. Al- Albertson's, uh, he went to Albertson's at around noon um, after uh, the, the murders. And if he's the killer, that's what he was doing after butchering four people shopping at Albertson's uh, that afternoon. Okay. Uh, the other thing I'm, I'm astounded at, and I don't get this at all, 4 a.m., the noises begin and they wake up uh, Dylan, the, the surviving roommate. And she thinks she can hear Kaylee upstairs. She thinks she can hear Zana. Zana just got a DoorDash delivery at 4 a.m. And the killings happened <laughs> In this 15 minute to 16 minute period i can't understand how you could see lights on a DoorDash delivery arriving at a home and be killing within 15 minutes does this make any sense
9: well just keep in mind that nothing about this makes sense but what is startling is the confidence with which the killer would have gone in the door Within 12 minutes after the DoorDash delivery. Uh, we assumed, of course, they were all sleeping in their beds. But but now that we know the timeline, I mean, you get a DoorDash delivery, you're eating it in the next 12 minutes. This person came in. We know that uh, we believe Zanna was on TikTok at the time based on her digital footprint on her phone. It it represents a tremendous level of confidence, hubris, if you will, to think I'm going to go in there. I know there are people in there. There was just a delivery in there and begin the stabbing spree. Uh, The the toward that affidavit just made my blood curdle ashley to think that there was you know crying that there was a thud that there was whimpering um and we're certainly not putting any blame on the surviving roommate i think what she witnessed was absolutely traumatic uh but for him to then walk past a living witness and leave her alive makes no sense whatsoever unless somebody Casey, is in a can you yeah
8: can you give me 10 seconds here literally 10 sure. seconds do you think this is the first time killing
9: Uh, Yes, I do, because of all the mistakes made. Because if he had done it before, he would not have been this sloppy. But just because this was, in my estimation, the first time, if we hadn't caught him, I doubt it would have been the last.
0: You know, Mike, I totally agree, uh, disagree, excuse me, disagree. It does, just because if you did did it once before, it doesn't mean you worked out all the kinks. All killers make, make a huge amount of mistakes. So that reasoning holds no water to me but you know, she's, she's a smart lady, but um, I don't, I don't believe, I don't agree with her reasoning that, Oh, if he did it before, I think very possibly he could have killed before, you know? So uh, I would like, you know, the fact that, you know, practice makes perfect. Is that the theory behind this? I don't know. I don't totally, I don't agree.
3: Bill, can I comment real quick about the timeline? Sure.
0: Go ahead. Okay.
3: Um, You know, she was talking about what his state of mind would be. He's probably just about parking the car and the door dash delivery gentleman is there um, bringing food to uh, Zanacanodal. And uh, he then there's lights on, probably back door light, uh, you know, go leading out the back, maybe the front door light is on. So there's a little bit of ambient light coming in through some uh, shades and, you know, things like that. Um, And why would he do that when, you know, if he's watching, preparing, getting himself ready for this, because he's got this mission to kill, uh, go through with what he had planned on doing for a while, probably a a number of weeks. Why would he go through with it? Uh, It doesn't seem to make much sense. Obviously, uh, looking back, you'd say, well, wow, they're still awake. It's already four o'clock. They're eating now. Uh, They're having visitors. People are awake. Uh, maybe I better go back and and rethink this whole entire operation. My feeling is he got to the point where he'd juiced himself up. He's all set to go. He's got the murder weapon. He's, he's figured out what he's going to do. He's kind of like, you know, ready to jump off that diving board, you know, in, in, in a contest, he's got to go. Um, he's talked himself into it. If he backs down now. He's probably not going to do it. And I just think he, he steeled himself, said, I'm doing it now. Cause he'd gone so far. He probably thought he couldn't go back and, you know, uh, uh, hell be damned, whatever happens, happens, but I'm here. It's go time and I'm going, and it doesn't seem logical, but I think that's probably what was going on in his mind at that moment. DoorDash guy be damned. He's going to do it right then and there. He, don't, he doesn't want to back down. He doesn't want to go away. Um, he wants to do it now.
0: I think you're right. M- uh, Michael Aurelius Brutus. I love that name. <laughs> thank you for the 55. I don't know what um denomination that is, but thank you. Rape or kidnapping gone wrong to walk in a house with, with so many al- people alone to kill everybody with a knife is pure stupidity. Yes. To believe it. Yes, it is. But, you know, something people that kill people are stupid and evil. You know, we used the word evil uh, last week, and we got jumped all over by some uh, professor that was a uh, – she was the famous BTK professor. I guess she doesn't believe in evil. She believes in there's something wrong with the person's brain. I believe in evil. Uh, you know, if you wrestled around with a guy with a gun who's trying to kill you, you see the evil in his eyes. There's nothing wrong with his brain. He's evil, you but know.
3: Evil is when you're getting shot at, when your police car is getting shot at, and the bullets are bouncing off the quarter panel. That's
0: that's evil. Yeah, it exactly. Evil. Let me play a little bit more. Uh, finish this up. This we'll have you back for sure. Good to be here, Ashley.
8: Thank you for watching. Go to a
0: news. There <laughs> I started sharing the last few seconds of that, but. Uh, I think that because behavioral analysis and behavioral analysts and psychiatrists and psychologists were such a big part of the talking head phenomena on this case in on social media as well as the broadcast media, I think they're going to be a big part of this trial also. Uh, I think that absolutely the prosecution is going to utilize some of these very same talking heads to explain to the jury behavior. Not that you can explain behavior, but I think they're going to use, uh, they're definitely going to use it.
3: Right. You you want to bring in some, uh, you have to address the angle of um, motive and in order to do that, because again, it's not an absolute necessary part of the corpus delicti. You have to prove the acts, you have to prove the mental state, you know, the intent, you know, that sort of thing. But the ex- explanation, you, you'll probably want to do that so that the uh, jury can actually kind of understand what the motivation was, because it seems very senseless. So you probably will have that um, the d- uh, defense attorney is going to bring in, obviously, a witness to talk about uh, the effects of bullying on a person's psyche and, and, and things like that. Um, but it's it's going to be a necessary and important component of the trial to put things in context, one, from the prosecutor's point of view, uh, and the second from allowing the defense in their case in chief, and they're allowed to present evidence, maybe not of his absolute mental illness, because we don't have a defense of mental illness or insanity in Utah, but to show that there is some sympathy given, should be given to uh, a person who has been bullied and the anger that maybe wells up within them, Mm. that's about it's gonna so it's gonna happen you're gonna have probably uh you know those sorts of expert witnesses for both the prosecution and the defense it's going to be a necessary component of the of the trial
0: absolutely 100 i just want to play a very little bit of this this of course is the famous genetic genealogist cc moore and this is going to be such a huge huge part of the case
8: belonging to the co father how exactly does this this
9: work?
10: I'm not convinced that it started with that. I still think it's very possible that investigative genetic genealogy was used to point them in his direction or they received the tip about the car. It may have helped them to vet that tip and to determine that he actually was his family tree was consistent with the DNA sample from the knife sheath. They don't have to include everything in the affidavit and genetic genealogy should not be used for the basis of an arrest. So in my opinion, it would be proper that they left that out. So I think it's very likely there's a lot more to this story yet to come out, but either way, it ended up.
0: You know, Mike, one of the things she said, which I think is so, so important, says, in her opinion, genetic genealogy shouldn't be used as the basis for an arrest. How huge is that?
3: Yeah, it's, you know, it's part of, you know, what you need to make an arrest. It's, it, it's one of the ingredients of probable cause, but not the sole ingredient of probable cause. You have genetic genealogy, but you also have the the uh, camera footage from the traffic cameras in the area. You have the cell phone pinging and not pinging at certain times that match with the, uh, with the, uh, Uh, Traffic cameras. So yeah, it's uh, it's by itself, it's circum, it's strong circumstantial evidence. But probably a judge would probably not grant uh, uh, an arrest warrant for for just that alone. But combined with several other things, is absolutely crucial.
0: Absolutely. Let me finish this up here.
10: Them following him to his father's, his parents' home, and doing what we call a trash pull. This has happened in lots of my cases as well. They have to collect that surreptitious DNA and compare that to their crime scene DNA before they can arrest anyone. In this case, there were multiple people in the home. They wouldn't have known exactly whose DNA it was until they were testing it. And they found that male DNA that ended up being the father of the person who left the DNA behind on the knife sheath. And so that is a standard paternity test that's the type of test that's been accepted in courtrooms for decades to establish paternity so that is
8: very very high
10: confidence
8: well we saw investigators remove what looks to be bed frames and and actually uh, the mattress of the bed and it appeared to have blood stains on it can you kind of point out what exactly investigators are looking for
10: this was such an incredibly horrible crime scene, and we're learning more and more all the time, that I think it's very likely there's additional DNA from Brian at that scene. They have told us about the DNA on the the sheath of the knife. Now, that was probably touch DNA, could have been blood, but most likely touch DNA. I wouldn't be at all surprised if he left additional DNA behind. We know from the witness statement that at least his eyebrows were showing, and it sounds like his hair wasn't even covered. So he may have left uh, hair behind as well, which also contains DNA. And advancements in technology have meant we can get quite a lot of information from even a rootless hair now. So I think both they and the defense are scouring that crime scene to see what else is there. I'm I'm a little confused about why those matches are being moved right now and who exactly is doing that and the method that they're doing that. But I think there's been a lot of work on that crime scene already gathering any possible physical evidence to, the prosecution's case, try to support their case, and in the defense's case, to try to find somebody else's DNA that they can try to pin this crime on.
0: So that, that, is, that is so fascinating. And I think that a lot of this case is going to hedge. Of course, the most important evidence in this case is DNA. And I believe someone in the chat said that touch DNA isn't as reliable as, say, blood DNA. Of course, they can recover much more DNA from blood than they can from touch. Sure. Because sure. I believe touch is just going to have small either skin cells right. or sweat uh, left behind, where blood is a whole a whole different thing.
3: Oh, sure. They got the touch DNA, and they didn't have anybody to compare it to while they were building the case. And then when they zeroed in on uh, Mr. Coburg, and they got the uh, the familial DNA from his father. Uh, they matched it. It was enough to make a match. Do um, You know they will uh, also do a cheek swab or cheek scraping, uh, that sort of thing, to uh, double check. You know, absolutely. So, yeah, it's everything that they're doing, that they've done, they're going to redo, go over it again, make their case stronger. So it won't be – when you get to the trial, it won't be – you know, just uh, touch DNA is the one single thing that, you know, guilt or innocence is going to be depending on. Not at all. There's going to be uh, another DNA test done just to make sure.
0: And and as uh, CC Moore said, and we've said. She was we great. Believe, we believe there's, there is tons more mm-hmm. DNA from, A, we spoke before about the bodies. Right. They haven't even released that yet. That's the right. autopsy. The autopsy is going to have, you know, probably scrapings from underneath the fingernails, transfer evidence from the perp, possibly hair from the perp Mm -hmm. on the victims. So all of that contains DNA. So that will be like it will be such, such powerful, powerful evidence that I don't know how, you know, defense attorneys always come in very cocky. Oh, we got this. We got this. Well, you got this now with the probable cause warrant. But as they start pulling track to trailers up filled with evidence, I think uh, it's gonna be a little more difficult. Mike, um, we actually went way over. Uh, final um, Final thoughts and then we'll uh, say goodbye.
3: Uh, final thoughts just uh, for the, for the viewers to know that uh, between the FBI, the Idaho State Police and the local Moscow police, you know, every I was dotted, every T was crossed. Um, they followed procedure, collection of DNA. Nobody, his, his constitutional rights were not violated in any way, shape, or form. Um, they're going to put together a, a great case. They're still gathering evidence against him as we speak. And uh, there's, you still have a lot of uh, DNA tests. We'll, hopefully, we'll know more um, uh, in the following week. Some evidence will probably rele- be released to the press, uh, depending on the judge's orders. Uh, so it, there's a, a lot of work to do. Um, he's going to be given a fair trial with with competent attorneys who are versed in death penalty cases, as is the requirement under uh, Idaho law. I looked it up. You have to have at least one attorney who has had at least one previous death penalty case. So he's going to be well represented. Uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, case.
0: Absolutely, 100%. Folks, I want to uh, just thank all you guys for coming by today. I think this part of the case where we're discussing the evidence because there is so much evidence that they currently have, but so much evidence that we are unaware of because they haven't released it yet. And one of the biggest collectors of evidence is the autopsy and the autopsy has never been released. So the work of the pathologist has never been released because the pathologist is the person that's going to collect the evidence off the bodies. That is probably... The, the hugest amount of evidence, the most important evidence they'll get in this case. So, folks, I want to thank everyone for coming by today. I hope you enjoyed Police Off the Cuff with myself, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, and, of course, retired <laughs> NYPD Sergeant and Professor Michael Geary. Have a great you, day, brother. everyone. And God bless. Take care.
6: One episode, just saying enough.